friends, hey and welcome to Retreat Affairs. Today I have a very delicious episode for you. My guest is Bettina Campolucci-Bordi, the founder of Bettina's Kitchen, a food lover, a kitchen goddess and a dedicated retreat chef. You can find Bettina on her website bettinaskitchen.com, on Facebook at Bettina's Kitchen or on Twitter at Bettina's Kitchen and on Instagram at Bettina's underscore kitchen. Not only is Bettina a retreat chef, her journey into food and nutrition has taken her to many places and besides her busy Instagram feed and inspiring food blog that both feature lots of tasty inspiration, she has written two cookbooks, Happy Food, Fast, Fresh and Simple Vegan and her second book, The 7-Day Vegan Challenge. If you want to experience Bettina's magic, you can go with her to Bali again in March 2021. Or check out Reclaim Yourself, where she brings her skills to the plate on some of their retreats. Jules, the founder of Reclaim Yourself, was already on the podcast. And if you listen to her episode, you get to know more about her retreats. Bettina is sharing her wisdom wherever she can, so it's no surprise that she has founded the Retreat Chef Academy, where she teaches others who would like to become retreat chefs or learn more about plant-based food. I hope I made you curious and hungry for more. Welcome to the show. Bettina Campolucci Bardi. Welcome, Bettina. Thank you for being with me. Thank you for taking the time and doing this interview. Thank you so much for having me, and so nice to see you. Yeah, nice to see you too. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, how long, actually? When have we seen each other the last time? Um, I think it's been four years, because it was the Mongolia trip. Yes, that's true. And I met you during the there was a the the sort of premiere of the video that was at it. Lululemon. Yeah, and you did the catering, wasn't that? And I did the catering. That's true. Yes. Yeah. Yes, four years ago. Yeah, and I remember it was Yay! delicious. Oh my gosh. I really liked it. I remember it was some like you had all these little things that you could take in your hand and I remember like something with cucumbers and this delicious paste inside. Uh, it was really, really creative. I totally enjoyed it. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. I, lo I, I love doing canapes and that sort of food. It's, um, it's really nice. You get to sort of play around with textures and what's available and sort of it's the, it's the opportunity that you have to sort of show other people the, um, the possibilities with plant-based food yeah and i also remember that uh, you had everything really well prepared so you had all your little boxes and just needed to put everything together so i was just um very um impressed by your organization oh my goodness yes i it was in a basement so, <laughs> so i had to have everything prepared because there was no kitchen But um, that is sort of the story, the story of my life in terms of retreat chefing. You just never know. You never know where you're going to end up. You never know what your venue is going to be like. You never know what equipment you're going to have. So you kind of always have, it's always better to be more prepared. So how do you feel about preparation? Is preparation something that's important in your kitchen? Do you like to be prepared for everything that comes? I think... 
Yeah, definitely. I think preparation is key. And especially if you're catering to larger groups or if you're catering in uh, different venues and countries, as you know, um, sometimes uh, plans can change on a daily basis. Uh, you know, uh, an outing is not going to happen because it's raining and then it's switched to the next day. So it's always good to sort of be pre-prepared a couple of meals ahead, isn't it? Mm. Um, and and also because you you know usually you work with one or two assistants if you're lucky you've got a team so preparation is key i think but okay there is the different parts of preparation so preparing like a whole retreat um, knowing everything that you cook or preparing for an event or how do you go about in the kitchen do you really do everything mise en place, preparing all the little ingredients, setting everything aside before you actually start to cook, before you go to the stove or the oven and then uh, putting everything together? I think for me, the more you can prepare, the better. So I do like having everything sort of chopped, ready or washed and peeled so that when you are putting together the meal, it's almost like an orchestra, that you've got all your components ready and you're basically putting things into a pot or you're putting things into an oven. And then when you've got all your, as, as we call it, mise en place ready, you just put things together on a plate and out it goes. Also, because food has to go out at the same time. It's not sort of... Um, It's not like in a restaurant where you do it dish by dish. Sometimes you have to do, you know, 20 plates of food or 30 or 40 at the same time. And, um, yeah, people don't have a lot of patience. <laughs> so you need to make sure that it flows. Um, and I guess one of the – I've talked about this a lot, but one of the sort of down pitfalls of retreat chefing is timing. Um, to have everything ready for when people come out of yoga or when they come out of a whatever class they're doing in terms of, of, of wellness is to make sure that you've got the food ready because people come out hungry, as, as yeah. we know. And yeah, I, I made that observation for myself that, um, and I have this friend, he always quotes me on that. Um, I'm always saying that, When the kitchen looks like nothing has happened, the food mostly is really good. Oh, yes. Yeah, and, and I mean, it can also happen that when everything is a mess, when I've been totally creative and going wild in the place, it can mm. be good. But mm, when everything is like cleaned up, I had the time in between, I'm really focused and structured and I can put everything in place. And then when the kitchen is super clean at the end, the food mostly is really good. Yeah, I think I agree. That's a really good, um, that's a really good point, actually. I'll remember that. You're welcome. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll remember. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really important. It's cleanliness and being organized is really important to me. Um, I don't like messiness and sort of, I don't know, it kind of, it almost messes with my thought process if things are messy. And on retreat, um, I always wake up very early And I go into the kitchen by myself before any of the team come in because I like to have my one cup of coffee. I like to sit down and write a list 
or sort of the plan of action of the day and sort of get my head organized before everyone else wakes up because all of a sudden then questions come and then you, you're, you've, you've started your day. So one of the things that I do do on retreat is wake up very early. So usually at like 5 or 5.30, which is about an hour to an hour and a half before everyone else, just to sort of have a clear head and know what I'm doing. And it's quite nice because everyone's asleep. And is this uh, something that has always been a part of your life? Have you always been organized? Do you see yourself as an organized person? Is it something that you have trained for? Have you learned in the kitchen? Or is it something that evolved through the necessity of working in retreats? Oh my gosh. So this is the thing. I'm, I'm not a trained chef. I had a, I've had a lifelong passion for food. I've always loved cooking since I was a very little girl. One of the first things I learned how to cook was, I think when I was six or seven years old, was pancakes. Um, so I've had a lifelong passion for food and cooking. However, I wouldn't say I wasn't allowed to pursue it. But, you know... The option of going to chef school was not very appealing to my parents. And they were like, mm, yeah, no. <laughs> so the closest thing that I could actually get to in, into a kitchen, and also I, I started working in restaurants from the age of 15. So I was doing a lot of front of house. So I studied hotel management. And in hotel management, you you sort of, you go through every single position that would be in a hotel. So you spend eight weeks in the kitchen, you spend eight weeks doing service, you do eight weeks of theory. It's sort of the very traditional hotel management uh, type of school. So you do eight weeks of work and then eight weeks of theory. And then that's how it goes for, for, for three years. So that's what I did. Um, and that's my educational background. So I was front of house for many years until um, about eight years ago, I was working at a retreat center in Marbella in South of Spain and decided to co-found um, a retreat. And I, was, I thought, brilliant, we don't have a chef. I love cooking. So I'd love to do the chefing on this retreat. And we did, we did one as a, as a tester. I absolutely loved it and decided that the food was going to be plant-based and gluten-free because at the time it was really popular to do juice detoxes and um, these boot camp type of retreats, which I guess are still popular. But we wanted people to eat food and to eat um, lots of plant-based and and gluten-free so it's kind of I, I had to retrain my sort of classic cooking brain uh, and cooking habits and I did that through books through cookbooks and a lot of those authors were Swedish actually so one of them uh, Renia Voltaire uh, she's an amazing uh, Swedish chef and she's got a deli and she's got a product line and I still very much admire her um, so those were sort of the first kind of books and experiences into the, into the plant-based cooking, but it, so it's all been through experience. It's not the retreat chefing thing. When I got into that, not many people were doing it. 
and definitely not the plant-based gluten-free route either. That took a good, it took at least three years of me doing that for it to really sort of take off. And I guess it's the right time, the right place. So it took off with the delicious Liellas and the Hemsley sisters and um yeah and it became popularized um sort of with with brands and everything as you know it's it's really taken off now okay and and when it comes to learning and inspiration um i mean you said that you have been trained in the hotel management school yeah um but what were your first steps into the kitchen into the exploration of food and deliciousness um I come from a family that when we went on holiday, we didn't go to museums or we didn't sort of look at the history of the place. We would go to restaurants or we would go to food markets or, um, you know, both my parents and both my grandmothers were amazing cooks. Um, so my grandmother from Norway that lived in Sweden and I have a Bulgarian grandmother um, all really good cooks. So I don't know, food's been ingrained in me since, since I could walk and talk basically. So that's where my inspiration comes from and travel. I grew up in East Africa in Tanzania for my first 11 years. And then I lived in Sweden for my next 10. So traveled all over. It's just, it's, It's something that's always been there. And cooking as a skill is one of the few things I always knew I was quite good at. So that skill set kind of, I always cooked at school. I always cooked at home. And whenever we had guests, I would do the food rather than my mom or my dad. Um, when I went to university, I would always cook with friends. Um, if anybody had a birthday party, I'd always do the catering for them. So it's just something that I always did, but no, I've had no official training. I did, um, once I started doing retreat chefing and really got into it and figured out that this is what I really want to do with my life and sort of found my purpose. I think, I think, you know, when you find your purpose, I, I spent a lot of my twenties wondering what I was meant to do, but knowing that I was meant to do something, but I hadn't yet found that something. And when I started retreat chefing, it all sort of fell into place. And I kind of felt I need to be doing this and it feels really good to do it. And I kind of followed my intuition and my gut and my heart rather than following my brain that is usually the one that interferes with your gut and your heart because it tries to argue <laughs> with your gut and your heart and going, why are you going to do that? The consequences are this or, you know, fear or so many things that your sort of um, brain argues with you of the reasons why you shouldn't do something or why you should sometimes. So um, I did Matthew Kenny. I don't know if you know who that is. He is a vegan raw chef. He's kind of pioneering in terms of um, methodology. And I did his courses. So when I sort of 
I, banana slid into retreat chefing. I started um, training more and taking courses. And one of the courses that I did was his and also flew over to LA. And those first retreat experiences, what were they like? I mean, like, what was your expectations going into that? And what did you get out of it? Uh, what was the experience like that you had in those first retreats? Um, oh, my goodness. So, I don't know, so many different things. It completely depends on who you have coming on retreats. I mean, my first experiences of retreat chefing was really positive. And people were sort of really pleasantly surprised by the food. Um, even though, you know, 90% of the people that come on retreats are not plant-based or gluten-free. And I think it was, it's the reaction that you get and sort of um, people's experiences and the journey that you take them on that make you go back to doing retreat chefing. Because as you know, It can be, it, it's hard work. <laughs> it's very long hours. It's not as glamorous as everybody thinks it is. However, the reward is amazing when people react to it positively. Um, and you take them on a food journey. So in, in that sense, it's great. But I assume that, uh, I mean, you mentioned earlier that you grew up with a Swedish and Bulgarian background. So I assume that uh, the kitchen that you grew up with wasn't necessarily plant-based and gluten-free. So how did you decide to offer that kind of kitchen on your retreats? Oh my gosh. Um, I, yeah, no, it's definitely not a plant-based and gluten-free world <laughs> that I grew up in. Um, I went so actually just before I started uh, hosting and cooking on retreats, I was diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome and endometriosis, which are two sort of um, conditions that affect your fertility. And I had quite severe symptoms of, of both um, and basically this was literally just before I started the retreats and was told that the likelihood of me ever having children was not, it's, it wasn't going to happen for me. And I think I must've been 26 or 27 at the time. So receiving that devastating news just made me a look at my lifestyle and b research what I could do to do something about the conditions I had At the time, it wasn't really spoken about. Um, there were a few books on the subject. And I just started researching what I could do in a natural way because the only other options were to sort of go back on, on the pill, which regulates your hormones, uh, and or to go on medication. And those were two options that I didn't want to take. So I did lots of changes in terms of my lifestyle, my lifestyle choices. Remember, I was in my 20s living in South of Spain, loved a good party and <laughs> used to go out a lot um, and did that throughout. Yeah, I did that for a long, long time. Um, and it sort of, yeah, what any sort of young 20-year-old 20, 20 would do, go out four or five times a week. <laughs> um smoked loads I used to smoke a lot crazy um so I kind of I made a lot of tweaks to my lifestyle at the time 
and also started the retreats and started cooking plant-based and gluten-free and decided to go plant-based and gluten-free because I thought this is actually quite nice. I like the food. I like the lifestyle. Everyone else seems to be feeling really great after a week of it. So I made a decision there and then to go plant-based and gluten-free and realized that actually I was severely gluten intolerant and might have been for many years and my some of my issues might have stemmed from that. Um, and uh, took supplements, I started exercising. I mean, lots and lots of different um, changes. That's why I don't really talk about this a lot because I would never want to say, I went plant-based and gluten-free and therefore, you know, because I I actually got pregnant um, seven months into this whole lifestyle change, which was something that we never thought was going to happen. So I refrain from saying I made this change and then that happened. There were many things that happened over the course of a time period where I just decided to to change uh, my lifestyle basically. And yes, uh, seven months into my new business, I got pregnant. So Isla, my eight-year-old daughter now, is has been a very big part of my, uh, of my business and my journey. And I was nine months pregnant <laughs> when I did my last retreat just before, two weeks before she was born, waddled in the corridors cooking. Um, and she's, yeah, she's been a big part of that. And it's been amazing. So yeah, a, a lot of things have sort of trickled in. And I think in the beginning, the the cooking, the plant-based lifestyle, being gluten-free, all of that was very much meshed into my life. And it was very much uh, one, one unit. And as time's gone and as plant-based and gluten-free has become a business and it's become something that I do as a career choice, those two things have had to separate a little bit because I've realized that not everything I recipe develop I like, but I recipe develop it because other people like it or because brands or people that I work with want something particular Whereas before, what I was showcasing on Instagram and on social media was very much my life and what I was eating on a daily basis. And now it's become, it is definitely what I eat on a daily basis sometimes, but it's also become a much bigger business. So the Bettina's Kitchen branch obviously does recipe development for brands and I do social media. And we've got the books, Happy Food and Seven Day Vegan Challenge that sort of were born out of my passion, my new career path. I still run retreats. I do one or two in Bali. And then I still freelance with Jules from Reclaim Yourself. And then there's the other branch, which is the Retreat uh, Chef Academy, where I teach uh, other people 
how to become retreat chefs. And that is speaking basically my experience from the last eight years put into one very intensive week. <laughs> okay, that's a lot of different branches and experiences. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, I would love to take a little bit of time to get into each and one of yes, them. Yes, of course. Mm, so let's get back to, you mentioned um, that you've changed your diet and you also said that you've uh, written this book, The Seven Day Vegan Challenge. Um, so what would you say, like what is the biggest obstacle mm. uh, in changing over to a plant-based diet and also seeing that people coming to a retreat, uh, I mean, it's also mostly a seven-day period. Like what is um, the challenge of incorporating a plant-based diet in this experience and how is it received by people? I think... Hmm. It's an interesting question. I think when I started out with retreat chefing, it was very easy because most people hadn't tried it and you were taking people on sort of a food adventure. And I think as the years have progressed and, and sort of gone along, I think there's a lot more food intolerances and there's a lot more preferences and there's a lot more preference sheets before people come on retreat. I'm, I've noticed. So it's, it's more complicated now to cater for a retreat group than it was, say, eight years ago, where it was pretty simple. Um, surprisingly, I think there's a lot more people that are plant-based in terms of eating less meat. There's a lot more people that have cut out gluten. Um, for the people that are neither plant-based or gluten-free, I think they've either had really good experiences or they come with huge judgment and are sort of like, right, let's see what this is all about. <laughs> come on. <laughs> um, and hopefully, I think, you know, I try to cater for everyone. And we've spoken about this before. For me, the expectation is not everybody's going to love it. Not everybody's going to love my food, which is totally okay. However, what I try and do is I try and make sure that there's one meal that is somebody's favorite meal throughout the week. So I've got seven days and three meals a day to sort of try and cover as much scope as I possibly can. That's why I sort of incorporate, I have a little bit of Asian influences, I have a little bit of Mediterranean Italian influences, just so that I can hit somebody's taste, but at least for one meal, and they go, actually, that was really good. That was my favorite thing. Um, and there's an example when I was in when I was did the retreat in Mongolia. Um, there was somebody there who had never had a fully plant based meal ever. So a, going to Mongolia, <laughs> which is completely digitally free and digital free and having vegan food in the desert <laughs> for seven days uh, was a huge challenge for him. But um, I think he had some Asian, Asian heritage and I did these spring rolls and his partner came up and said, oh my God, thank you so much 
for making something that is sort of Asian inspired because that was his favorite meal and it reminded him of home and his roots. So, you know, did he like all the other meals? Probably not. <laughs> but he liked that one meal and it was his favorite. So that's how I like to approach it and sort of think about it and uh, give people the experience and also serve food that is comforting and recognizable um potatoes is one of those things you know i i do potatoes on my retreats lots of people um put categorize potatoes as bad i don't they're comforting everyone loves them everyone loves a potato salad it's just so recognizable or a roast potato or a chip or a rosti, whatever it is, or mashed potato. It's just something that's recognizable and it's comforting. And when you are on retreat, it's really important to make people feel loved through food. It's not a deprivation. It's not what you can't have. It's supposed to be, in my book, look at all the options that you can have and have you ever had this before? And if you haven't, look, it's incredible and tasty. And um, through easy methods and not overcomplicating things too much so that people feel inspired. So how do you see yourself? How do you see your role as a retreat chef in comforting people um, when they are in like new situations, challenging situations? How do you see the role of yourself and the role of food in a retreat surrounding? I think, I think of retreat food as a hug, a hug on a plate where you know that you feel loved and looked after and you know that whatever is on your plate is going to make you feel better and it's going to do that in several different ways from a nutritional point of view from a taste point of view from a sensation point of view that's why textures are really important I always say this it's it's important to have food on a plate that's not one dimensional. So when you take a bite out of it, there's a crunch. And, you know, from a mental health perspective, having texturized food is sort of instant gratification um, and have different layers, having a drizzle or a crunch or something fresh. Um, color schemes are really important. So having something colorful on your plate because it's, you, you know, you eat with your eyes first. So I kind of view I kind of view retreat food as a hug and also taking people on a journey. So you start off slow with what people are used to having and then you can take them on an adventure. So you sort of it's a storyline. So you start off with something that's very recognizable and then you take people on a journey. Um, and I always recommend ending your retreat with a bang with, with a really good breakfast or with an amazing dinner. Um, the retreats that I've been on, not all of them, but some is, you know, you either run out of budget or you run out of steam. And then the last meals that you have, you're eating leftovers and nobody wants to do that because people are scrambling to see whatever's left and you don't want to waste anything which I totally understand. And I think that you can incorporate and do that very easily. But, you know, 
it's it's nice to end the way that you started yeah i totally agree and for me it's also about especially in the first night i feel that i want to give the guest uh, a feeling of safety yes. so that they really have that feeling of being safe yeah I mean, they're coming to a new place, they're in a totally different uh, environment, they're away from home, and depending on the retreat, they're also going to like some deep uh, changes, and they're going to face some challenges, maybe going into practices that bring out a lot of stuff, and I mean, like retreats in general, they bring out a lot of yeah, stuff. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and then, then they're in a different environment, they yeah. don't know the place, they don't know the chefs, so like the whole situation of like, do I I get enough yes. what is the food like it's definitely a new situation and it's uh, like mentally it's always a little challenge for people and this is why i feel it's so important to make people feel safe uh, with the first meals that you serve and uh, once they understood that they get enough and that there's enough variety and it tastes good then throughout the next few days they're also much more forgiving mm. because like maybe i have a day where i'm not like 100 um on point and something isn't the best dish I ever created um, but that's okay I mean like it's it's a little bit like being at at home with your mother I mean our mothers have been great cooks yes. but maybe also they had a bad day and not every dish was the best that they ever did but that's okay yeah it's ex it's it's exactly that that's what I call a hug it's a safety it's a hug it's a everything is going to be okay um, I don't know about you, but, you know, very often partners get taken on retreats, husbands. <laughs> and they're like, oh, my God, why am I here? I'm going to starve. It's going to be. And then what usually happens is that first night, there's a big sigh of relief. And it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to be okay. It's going to be fine. At least the food's good. <laughs> don't know about the yoga or whatever else I've been dragged to, but at least the food's going to be all right. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, c I couldn't agree more. Very, very true. And how do you prefer working in a retreat environment? Do you prefer being on your own, in your own space with your team? Or do you have kind of an open kitchen where everybody can come in and have a look at what you're doing? What is your preference there you mean retreat retreat people yeah i mean it, it it always depends on the location because like sometimes you have a retreat place that has like a family style kitchen where people can pass through mm. um, and sometimes you have places where you are a little bit more separate you're in the kitchen away from everybody and it's harder to connect with the group and you maybe see them only for meal times i think I think it's better if you're not in a family style kitchen because food is one of those things that very, it is, it's very community based. People are always interested in it. And what tends to happen then is that you get lots of people coming into your kitchen asking for different things. And as a, in a, in a retreat chef situation, uh, that isn't always great. Um, and it's a fine balance on how you handle those things because people will come and say, what are you cooking today? Oh, are you cooking lentils? I don't like lentils. Do you think I can have something else? 
And then you say, you know, inexperienced retreat chef goes, okay, yeah, let's not give you lentils. I'll give you something else. And then that person goes and tells their friend, oh, look, you know, Sasha's organized this for me. Uh, I'm not having lentils. I'm having this. Oh, I want, I don't like lentils either. I want that. And then you sort of start a snowball and, you know, it's not a good situation to do that. Um, so I have been in those situations in during the early days where people go, I don't like this. Can I have that? It's, you know, as you know, unless, unless you have a food allergy, um, or serious issue with a certain type of ingredient, then yes, you can cater. But that's the thing with retreat chefing. Everybody gets the same dish unless you have an allergy towards it. So you can sort of, you can get into a, a tricky situation. And also because most often you don't have a team or there's only one assistant or two if you're lucky, it means that you're constantly in the kitchen cooking, preparing the next meal. So there's very little time to cater individually to people. Um, so I would have to say I prefer the don't come into my kitchen approach, not because I don't want to be not social. And a, a way of connecting with people is um, what we always do is one of us always sits with the um, clients on each meal so that everyone from the kitchen gets to experience and also get connected to the group that they're catering for. And that's a nice way of doing it. Another thing that I've done in the past is I've done seva. So people have been able to sign up and one by one come into the kitchen and help. And we've either had a chat while we've been preparing or people come and sometimes don't say anything. And it's quite meditative for people to come and prepare food with you. And it's a beautiful thing to do because they put the energy into um the group meal which which can be pretty nice so doing that is a nice way of incorporating involving people as well or doing workshops is another option um so yeah i i like being connected to the group but in a in a uh in a way that isn't too interfering <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I totally get it. Um, I mean, I haven't really seen it from that point of having all these extra wishes. So maybe I was just lucky and having um, guests on my retreats that didn't have like too many mm. extra wishes or it was quite clear from the beginning. Mm. Um, but I see the kind of extra work that it can create. Um, I have to say that mostly I tend to have an open kitchen. I really love to have an open kitchen and mm. be able to just... Um, yeah exchange with people be with people but i also have to say that most of the times like the main part of the work is when everybody else is in class when they're doing their workshops so that's where i'm preparing but when everybody's coming out of class and this is the moment where i'm like 
super busy with yeah. creating everything, <laughs> making the last adjustments, uh, getting stuff out of the oven, preparing the plates or the bowls. So yeah. I'm like super, super tense and I, I want to do everything ready. And they're just like so relaxed, coming out of class, having a nice shavasana, but also being like super hungry, like, oh, having all these questions, like what's on and how can we help you? And um, yeah, <laughs> that can be so sometimes a little bit challenging yeah and I have to observe myself uh, and I also have to manage how to coordinate uh, what I need to do in the kitchen but also maybe then coordinate people so uh, and that's always a really really challenging situation yeah so yeah there are these different stages and I like definitely some moments where I'm totally happy to have nobody around and uh, I really enjoy just being in my meditation mm. and doing whatever I need to do I can listen to my mantras and I can just um, get creative and I don't have to explain myself because that's also the kind of creative process. Like sometimes I'm just so much in a flow and I really don't know what I'm actually doing, but I just follow my intuition. And in those moments, it's like hard to explain because... Um, it's it's different than offering a workshop where you really know what you're doing and you have something laid out. Um, but I also enjoy those moments where I can just go wild in the kitchen. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, I agree. That's very, very true. Um, yeah, it is a meditative, meditative state. It's sort of, you know what you're doing structurally. And sometimes you need the headspace to just be able to to get that done. Going one more time back to preparation. So, I mean, like, how do you go about preparation? Do you have all your meals laid out before you go into a retreat? Or do you sometimes also just go with the flow and see what's available and what just feels right to do in that moment? Hmm. I think... It depends on 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 the job. So when I am cooking um, at retreats with uh, Jules and Reclaim Yourself, then I have to hand in the menu eight weeks before uh, the retreat, and it has to be everything has to be on there. Uh, so breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then usually a shopping list. I need to really plan carefully. Um, Mongolia, for example, I have to make a list with all the ingredients. If I miss or forget something, I can't go to a shop and get it because we're in the middle of the desert in a yurt. So, and we only get deliveries, I think two or three times in the nine days that we're there. So it has to be very specific and it has to be very, very, very organized. And still to this day, every time I send that list off, I have a mini anxiety attack thinking, oh my gosh, I hope everything is on there, but usually it works out. It's always worked out in the during the times that we've been there. Um, so that is one way of doing it where everything has to be super planned and super organized. And I know exactly what I'm doing on each day unless the plans change because the weather has changed and, you know, they're not doing an outing, etc. My favorite way of cooking on retreat is the way I do it when I run my own in Bali, where I go to the market, I buy whatever is available. Um, there might be a few things that I bring with me, like gluten-free flours uh, that I love using because that's more temperamental. 
um, to buy uh, in other countries. So I will bring that with me if that's what I'm doing um, in terms of, of baking and stuff. And then I'll I'll go to a food market and I'll buy all the um, ingredients and then I will cook according to how I feel the group. And to me, that is when the best retreat food comes out because I have no idea what I'm cooking on a daily basis. And it's beautiful because sometimes you get, you know, I can tell very quickly by the first or second meal what type of group I'm catering to. And you really, really take them on a food journey throughout that week. And it's, uh, it's amazing. It's like total intuitive cooking. Um, obviously, there's no budget because I look after that budget. So it's limitless. And I don't mind spending budget on food. Um, but most of the retreats that I do are food focused because we go and visit farms. And um, it's the farms where I source all the produce from. And it's beautiful. You see basically the whole process of, you know, from from seed to plant to your plate. And it's amazing. I also incorporate ceramics because they are the vessels that carry our food. So there's a very intertwined story uh, throughout the week that has got to do with food because it's what I love doing. So that's that's my favorite way of cooking. But I have to say with with Jules and her retreats, and because we've worked together for so long, um, and I do the menus um, for them, but there is leeway um, on certain occasions, um, and it depends on the uh, countries and places that we go to. Like we were recently in Costa Rica, and there was these amazing uh, grandmas that worked in the kitchen, uh, Rosita and Jali where they taught me how to make Costa Rican empanadas, tortillas. So we totally incorporated that into the week in a, in a beautiful way, even though there was a set menu. So I, I sneaked in some extra bits. Um, and that is, you know, for me, that's one of the core beautiful things that happen through food is that exchange. They didn't speak a word of English, but we had this incredible food journey together in the kitchen where they learned what I knew and I learned what they knew. And we had this incredible experience. And to this day, I still receive um, messages from Rosita. And it's a, you know, it's a year later, but there's this beautiful connection that's been established and it's the same thing with my team in Bali it's the same thing with the team in Mongolia they also don't speak a word of English but it's this incredible team of women that I have the honor of cooking with every time I go and it's beautiful we forage together we wake up at three o'clock in the morning to go on a three-hour hike before we come back and cook breakfast for everyone and it's this exchange of experiences and food and um i love it it's um it's one of the most beautiful things is that connection that you can have 
through the community of food and it's it's a really nice community to be part of it's even on social media it's it's a very very nice community that's very helpful and supportive and lovely it's not i don't know i don't i don't know if other communities are like that i i mean fashion I, I doubt the fashion is nice and niche and cuddly. I think it's more, <laughs> I have no idea. I'm being very judgmental here. Oh, that's so true. I mean, you're, you're really coming together and sharing food together. You're, you share like one of the most important things in life together. You're sitting yeah, down at a table and it's you're amazing. sharing food. And that's bringing people together. And that's really important. Yeah, definitely. And it's something that's so ingrained in us, you know, cooking over fire in a group. Uh, having recipes passed down from one generation to the other. It's this vital thing that holds communities together. And it's so important that we hold on to that because it's disappearing. And, you know, families don't eat together anymore. Uh, families don't live close to each other anymore. So it's... Yeah, that's, that's really something that I experience a lot in retreats, that for many people, it's like so unusual to come together, sit down at a table and yes. really spend quality time with sharing food and not just rushing through a meal, being in a restaurant or wherever, but really having this kind of quality that you have in a family table, a family dinner, like many people nowadays live on their own. And coming together with others and spending time on food is so different. And that's so powerful of coming to a retreat to really have that experience and share it with others. Yeah, that is so true. And also the sense of community. And, you know, I'm sure that you've experienced this, that um, lifelong friendships are formed on retreats um, with people. A lot of people come on their own or come with friends and you, you get to know a, a sort of a, a semi-large group of people quite intensely for for a week through your joined experiences and it's quite a vulnerable experience and you know uh, everyone keeps in touch i've got va vast number of <laughs> whatsapp groups with with different um retreaters and it's amazing it's so nice and especially in times during like like now and it's also very nice to have people sort of dotted all over the world so when you do end up going to places there's sort of there's always someone so you're quite active on social media you're sharing a lot of knowledge um you're posting uh, recipes and you've written two books but then there's also something that you mentioned before you started a retreat chef academy where you are sharing everything that you've learned about retreats so how did this come about yes so with the retreat chef academy i think it was It was last year that I realized, so with retreat chefing, I've been doing that on and off over the years and some years more intensely and some years less. And it's one of the things that I always threaten to not do. And then I always end up going back to it <laughs> for some reason or the other, I guess because I love it. Um, but I also have an eight-year-old daughter, so I am very aware to not spend too much time away from her. 
because obviously with retreats, you're away for seven days and sometimes more. So anyhow, I realized that I was getting a lot of phone calls and messages from people that were running retreats, but with other chefs asking me questions about there's not enough food. You know, how is this possible? What do I do? Or my chef is doing this. Uh, and basically sort of asking me for advice. And I thought every every chef or, you know, should know this. This is kind of a given. And why is this happening? So I had this idea that maybe not everybody knows how to retreat chef. And maybe it is uh, as maybe you do need to have a special skill set. And maybe I should start teaching that skill set. So I put together a um, program. I stuck it up online and it sold out. <laughs> it got fully booked. And I thought, oh my gosh, okay, so I better get started and really write the program. So I had a few months to do that before I ran my first one. And ever since then, it's been it's been fully booked. So I do four weeks a year. Unfortunately, this year I've had to postpone. So I was meant to do one this week, actually. Um, so next year I'm doing one in February, May, September, November. And it's come about. That's how it's come about. And I have students from all over the world coming. There's 10 of them on each course. So it's a small course and they get me 24 seven for seven days, basically. So it's eight to nine hours a day. We have guest lectures that come in and teach different things. Jules is one of them. Actually, she comes and does a talk from reclaim yourself. And we go through all the basics of retreat chefing, but also plant-based and uh, free from cooking. So up until now, we've had students that have come in that want to be retreat chefs. Some people have wanted to open up their own businesses. Some people have had businesses but want to incorporate more plant-based and free from food. Um, I've had a few chefs that have wanted to sort of brush up on their skills because being able to cook plant-based and gluten-free now is quite essential for a business. So there's a mixed bag of, of, of students that, um, come and it's, it's very intensive even for me because we're together for a long time, but it's amazing because again, it's almost like creating lifelong friendships. And as you know, retreat chefing is quite an isolating, lonely thing because you're always working in different countries. You're always working in different venues you don't have the support system that you would have if you were just working in one place. So by coming and doing the Retreat Chef Academy, you will also automatically get a support system of nine other people that support you throughout the journey. So we have WhatsApp groups for each each um, sort of bunch and people go on to do different things. And if somebody's doing a pop-up, then you've got that whole group, including me supporting your new venture. Or if you're doing retreat chefing and you're stuck and you don't know what to do, you've got somebody to ask for advice. And I think that is so vital to build community and support 
around um, students and when you're in this industry because it can be quite singular and it's it, it, it's flaky in the sense that you're working with different people constantly. And what would you say? What's the main misconception that people have about retreat chefing before they come to the academy? I think... I think the misconception, not just for the academy, I think the main misconception is that it's this amazing opportunity to go on holiday. <laughs> like, oh my God, you went to Costa Rica. That must have been so amazing. I mean, the reality is that you spend 99% of the time in a kitchen. You don't know what type of kitchen you're going to spend time in. Uh, I think a lot of people think that it's a lot easier and that it's like going on a holiday, but it's not. It's quite the opposite. It's really hard work. And sometimes it's like, wow, your feet are going to fall off because it's a proper 15, 16 hour day. And, you know, if you're cooking in a yurt in Mongolia and it's 40 degrees, it's bloody hot. <laughs> um so I think the misconception is that you're going on holiday, but the reality is it's hard work, but I think the reward is greater. And if you're organized enough, you will also be able to experience your surroundings and be able to sort of experience the country that you're in, either before or after and sometimes during. So what I teach is budgeting, which is really important because you work with very small budgets most often. Uh, timings, really important. Uh, quantities, making sure that everybody has enough food and uh, from a nutritional point of view as well. And then I teach all the tips and tricks of being able to cater to a large number of people, but with very little equipment, equipment, because sometimes, you know, you've just got a four hob conventional oven and you're catering for 30 people and you've got one assistant. So how do you, how do you do that? It's like, um, it's, it's like a puzzle and you just need to know where to start and where to put the right piece in what place and once you've mastered that your life becomes a lot easier so that is pretty much what I teach and everybody gets a project at the beginning and it's a country that I've done a retreat in so it'll be and they have to create a menu and they have to do the budget and they have to create an ingredients list and then they have to present that at the end of um at the end of the uh, course, which is great. And it's so nice to see what people come up with. And it's inspiring, you know. It's um, There's definitely some superstars in there that have done incredibly well. And this final project that you have your students do, are they doing it on their own or are they teaming up in couples? They do, the, they do it on their own. And the first day they get given the, the country that they're doing the retreat in. And um, it's a project that uh, we do during class. So there's time, there's time allocated to, to finish it. 
And you mentioned that um, you're also teaching about budgeting and that for most retreats, when you're working for others, the budgets are quite tight. Uh, but when you're cooking for yourself on your own retreats, you're much, much more free. So how big of a difference is this actually? Oh, it's a huge difference. Huge. I mean, it completely depends on what budget you're given on a daily basis. Some budgets are really tight. And it also depends on what country you're working in. So, for example, Iceland is the produce is very expensive you are very limited to what you're able to import. Otherwise, you have to pay a fee. Um, so it's that is a complete sort of balancing act of what can I bring into the country without paying import tax and what can I get hold of in Iceland that is not crazy expensive uh, within a budget that is very, very tight. So I don't know, say it's six pounds a day per, per person. No, I think that's probably too much. But yeah, you it's a it's a balancing act. So it completely depends on on where you are and what your budget and possibilities are. So yeah, you need to figure out what you can get in Iceland, how much. Um yeah, it's really important. The other thing is over-ordering and spending too much money. If you're going to be hired as a retreat chef and you go over budget with 300 pounds, you're not going to be rehired. <laughs> and when you're working in a different country, you're probably not going to be able to take all the leftovers home. So you got a plan. Exactly. And nobody wants stuff left over. That's also not an option. So yeah, it's definitely a balancing act. Um perishables you know how long things last how big is your fridge do you even have a fridge you know all of those things there's, there's so many elements you need to be a magician basically that's your job title and you know a sprinkle of uh, uh of being a psychologist because you sort of you need to be able to handle people's emotion and there's a lot of emotion that is um attached to food You are basically, when you come on retreat as a retreat guest, you are giving up that control for a whole week and you are letting yourself be fed by someone else. And for some people, that is a really difficult thing to get over and they don't even realize that it's an issue until they come on retreat. That, you know, the food is going to be decided for you for a whole week. You, you sort of you have a little bit of say but not much and that can come there's so many things that pop up on retreats that you know you might think oh I'm gonna be fine but then you have no idea what emotions are gonna sort of poke their heads out <laughs> when you see yourself as a magician like what's your secret sauce what's your magic wand that you take to all of your retreats that helps you through difficult situations um, i think it's really important to be flexible and i think it's really important to be calm because there will be situations that you that are unexpected and if you can't take on those situations with calmness then you're in trouble if you start panicking and you need to be flexible because 
some things are not going to work out. You know, uh, I can give you an example of Costa Rica is a producer of cashew nuts. So I based some of my menu on cashew nuts. Got to Costa Rica, there was not a cashew nut in sight. So every shop that I went to, every market I went to, you know, the guys that were at the venue spoke to farmers and they're like, oh, yeah, no, uh, yeah, Costa Rica produces cashews, but not on this side of the island. Oh, it's on, you know, that side of the island. So, no, you know, we do cacao. Would you like some cacao? And I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, basically, you know, in that situation, you can panic and go, oh, my God, I've based so much on cashews. You know, there's, there was a few things I'd based on cashews. But in that situation, you kind of have to go, okay, this is what's happened. Right. I'm going to have to find a solution. So, you know. There's lots of coconuts, so you can use coconut meat. And, you know, they had blanched almonds, so I could use almonds instead. But those are the type of situations, yeah, flexible and calm. And also, that's really important with, with your team that you're going to be working with. So in Bali, for example, if a mistake happens or if, if something if something happens, so... Another example, I this was miscommunication. I WhatsApped my team because we were running late. And I said, would you mind chopping uh, the purple aubergines? So I get back to the venue and there's a mountain of chopped purple cabbage. And I go, that's not, but it's purple. <laughs> so... In that situation, you can't get angry because Bali is a very calm, very spiritual country, just like, you know, Thailand. If you get angry with your team, everything stops. Your whole team stops. So you have to very calmly assess the situation and just be flexible and find a solution. Because if you get angry, your whole kitchen is going to stop. So, yeah, there's a fle flexibility and calmness, I think, are, are key. You just never know what's going to happen. And I think my, my experience with traditional chefs is that you're used to having equipment and things a certain way that sometimes it can be difficult to adapt and be flexible and find solutions to things that are just not possible. And instead of spending time uh, stressing about it, it's much easier to spend the time and find a solution. Yeah, I can totally understand it. Um, this, this has always been one of my main guiding principles. And I feel it also goes into the food. I mean, you can taste it. And, exactly. Uh, yeah, you can feel it, definitely. Yes, definitely. I mean, there's been, there's been quite a few... You know, you just, you have no idea what's going to happen. And you might not think that's ever going to happen. But uh, retreats are, it's movable. It's not tangible because it's people and people are unpredictable. 
So lots of things can happen. So how do you deal with situations um, when you get responses from the clients when the food is not to their liking? Um, I think you've got to be kind and understanding to a certain point, but then also assertive and say, okay, I'm so sorry that you didn't like this meal. However, there's other meals coming up and I hope that you enjoy them. I mean, you can't take anything personally. Um, and it depends on how it's communicated. And you've just, yeah, you've also got to take into account that people are dealing with a lot of emotions. And it might not be you. It might be something that they're dealing with um, internally. Um And you just don't know what's come up in yoga. You don't know what's come up in meditation or, you know, if you have healers involved or anything like that. So I think first and foremost, you need to approach things from a calm, calm manner. And I also always think that it's good to sleep on things and not react straight away because you most often have time to either find a solution or be able to deal with the situation. And in contrary to the retreat work, um, you've already published two different cookbooks. Um, how do you go about finding the recipes for the books? How do you go about doing the research and finding um, recipes and inspiration? I guess it's a different approach. Huh? You don't, <laughs> you're not limited to seven days. Uh, you have much more time. How do you structure your time? And how much time do you take to write your books? Um, it's actually much longer. It's a much longer process than people think. So with, I mean, what usually happens is you, you have a book proposal. That book proposal gets sent to different publishing houses. And that in itself can take quite a while to get a response. And then once the book has been uh, the book idea gets bought by a publishing house and then you have a year usually from when you sign until it comes out you've got a year to write it so the whole process can sometimes take up to two years so with happy food I had all the recipes already sort of in my head and it was it, it's all the recipes that I've been cooking for clients on workshops and retreats With the seven-day vegan challenge, I basically what I do is I take notes. So I had lots of notes while Happy Food was already out. So when it was time to write the book, I already had a bunch of recipe ideas. Um, so that, yeah, but that process took about a year. So a little bit less time than Happy Food because I already had a publisher that I was working with. And then I'm currently working on a third book. And that process is going to take a year because that book is going to be out next August. So, yeah, the, the, that, that one I've had to start from scratch in terms of recipes um, and it depends on what type of project that you're working on. But I already have notes for a book four, which is a completely separate idea. So I've, I've, I've skipped 
the process of the note writing for book three, but I've started again with book four, just because it's so much easier to have a, a huge list of notes that you can sort of decipher and then place into chapters. And you mentioned before that you've done the training with Matthew Kinney, who's an amazing raw food plant-based chef um, and you've talked about another cookbook that has been an inspiration for you you are very active on social media and i guess you also follow a few other uh, influential people in that field um, so how do you feel about um, getting inspiration during that time of creating a book do you look at other things or you just stay away from everything and try to create everything from scratch for yourself so my process is to stay away because i don't i think that you indirectly get inspired by the things that you see so when i'm in the book writing process i try and stay away from looking at cookbooks i've got hundreds of them um so i try and stay away from that process because it's it, you might not think that you are but you are inadvertently um inspired by other people's work so i try and not do that while i'm writing the book um i get lots of inspiration from eating out traveling um which has been something that's been impossible at the moment so it's been a lot harder to write this third book uh than expected uh so yeah i i, I get inspiration through experience and through traveling and doing retreats and uh this year that's just been not possible in the same way it's completely different to last year i mean last year i, I think I did 10 retreats, <laughs> which is a lot for me. Um, so, yeah, completely different story. And the whole situation with the lockdown and the virus, did it change in any way your own way of nourishing yourself? Um, do you buy different stuff? Do you eat different stuff? Do you cook differently? Is there any change in your diet because of that? Um, I think obviously we're cooking three, like sometimes two, sometimes three times a day. Um, we, I don't traditionally, uh, shop in supermarkets. I never really have. So with living in London, we're quite spoiled because we're able to get hold of really good produce. So I usually go down the route of ordering stuff directly from the source. So whether it's um, an organic uh, veg box or certain suppliers, so I'll, I'll get my different elements of what we eat from direct sources. Um, and then supermarket-wise, there's not much we... I mean, there's a few bits that we get um, from supermarkets, but not much on a weekly basis. So... It's not really changed that much. We're still, I'm still, I'm, I've always supported smaller and independent businesses and continue to do so, probably more so now than, than before. And sharing those resources as much as possible on social media so that other people can support those type of businesses as well. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Um, and beyond that, I'm also 
Uh, I just have the feeling that I want to nourish myself. I just want to give myself everything that I need. I mean, like before the pandemic, uh, before all of this, I, I definitely had times in between where I was doing like detoxes and cleanses and uh, yeah, I uh, felt more like I had to get rid of stuff. But now it's really that I feel like, okay, I just want to give my body everything it needs. I really want to nourish myself and uh, allow myself to be fully satisfied uh, with what I eat. It's not that I'm indulging on chocolate and ice cream the whole time, but definitely um, I'm much more forgiving and also feeding myself in a comfortable way. Yeah, it's being more forgiving. And I think we don't realize that we are in a very stressful situation we have been for the last six months so it's very important to be kind and gentle to yourself in every possible way um i think there's you know social media can be fantastic but it's also sometimes a stark reminder of overdoing you know doing daily yoga doing daily meditation doing daily rituals doing daily exercise, doing this, doing that, doing this. And sometimes I think for me, one of the biggest lessons in terms of what this lockdown and all the situation has taught me is by not doing and actually completely and utterly stopping everything. And sometimes you need to stop everything to have time to reassess and figure out what it is you want to do or what kept you so busy before and was it worth it? Um, I think time-wise, I was very, very busy with so many different things that it didn't give me the time to have a proper reset and really think about what it was I was doing. So from a silver lining point of view, I think it's been quite helpful for me to stop everything and reassess what I'm doing unfortunately I've had to postpone things and it's had you know a huge effect on my business however I do see it as a learning curve and as a silver lining of really having the time to figure out what I'm doing and how I'm doing it and making sure that I've got time so you're also quite connected in the retreat world. Um, what has been your observation throughout these last weeks and months? Is there still a lot of retreats? Do you still get a lot of requests? Um, and what is the outlook for the coming months? I think everything is on pause at the moment. All my retreat associated work is completely on hold until we see what's going to happen. Um, there are retreats planned for next year. However, at the moment, things are on pause. And I think everybody is sort of waiting to see what's going to happen in the new year. I think that wellness and retreats and self-care is something that's going to be so needed after what we've just gone through. Um, the need for connection, the need for 
healing, reflection, being with people, community, experiences, all of that, I think it's going to be needed more than ever. So I don't think that is something that's going to go away. I just think that it's on pause at the moment, but people are going to come back to it and it's going to be needed more than it's ever been needed before, especially with um, what's happening in terms of our mental health at the moment. So what's your outlook for the coming months? What's your plan apart from writing the book? How will you spend your time? Writing the book and then I've got a retreat booked in, in Bali for March. So I am hoping, fingers crossed, that it can go ahead. Um, I've got a few retreats booked in with Jules, Reclaim Yourself, um, that are on a collaborative basis and are food focused. Uh, one in Ecuador and one in India. So really looking forward to doing those. I'm not doing as many retreats next year, but the ones I am doing are going to be really special and needed, I think. So yeah, it's March, October, and November are the dates for, for the retreats. Um, so those, those are the plans and fingers and toes crossed that they will go ahead. Other than that, I'm doing the Retreat Chef Academy. So the one that I was meant to do this week has been postponed until February. And I've got one running in May, one in September and one in November. So, yeah, hopefully everything is, is going to go ahead. And then other, apart from that, I still do recipe development um, for brands And I'm doing brand ambassadorships with uh, different companies. So it's my work is still going. It's just the sort of face-to-face -face and a lot of the stuff that I do where, where you meet people in real life, that, it, that part of my business is, is on hold. But the virtual and online stuff is still going. So I'm focusing on that until I can see people again. And if you could go, what would be your favorite destination right now, food-wise? What is a kind of kitchen that you would like to explore or taste again? Uh, what is just tickling your taste buds right now? Um, I would really like to be able to travel next year and do some research for my next book not the one I'm writing because that's being handed in in December but uh, I've got a few places that I'd really like to go to I would love to go to Israel which can be quite controversial but I would like to go there for the food because the food is meant to be amazing and a lot of it is plant-based I think they've got the biggest ratio of of vegans Uh, than anywhere else so they've got a lot of plant-based and vegan food um, I would love to go to Oaxaca in Mexico I would love to go to Georgia <laughs> which is um, maybe not something that people think about um, 
No, they do a lot of plant-based food there. Yeah, so a lot of pickling, and um, I would definitely love to go there. Well, I haven't been to Israel, but I have been to Lebanon, and I have to say it was just like so mm. delicious, and I really enjoyed the style that they have of having food so having all these little different dishes as a starter the metze and most of them are plant-based so you can easily create a very nice menu a very nice meal with different tastes and um, textures and flavors and uh, yeah that was just like so beautiful and most of it is plant-based so it's so easy to go there and, and eat out as a vegan yeah israel is meant to be like that with uh, i was meant to go on a, a press trip to israel in august but i couldn't make the dates oh got it <laughs> this was last august gosh not this august um what else uh, i love portugal i definitely want to go back to portugal that's also a nice foodie destination And just in general for, for a bit of sun. I don't know. There's so many places I want to go to. I really want to go back to Japan. I loved Japan. Uh, really want to go back to South Korea. Oh, so many places. When you go to Portugal, you got to let me know. I will hook you up with a dear friend of mine, Lisa. She was one of my main um, guiding forces when it comes to cooking on retreats. I mean, I actually cooked the first retreat with her. She invited me to cook with her on a Jiva Mukti retreat in Rügen a few years ago. And then we've been cooking together in the Jiva Mukti canteen in Berlin. And she's living in Portugal now and she has one of the most abundant gardens that I know mm. of. It's just mind-blowing. Wow. The variety of fruits and vegetables she grows there. Um, she's doing a lot of um, fermentation. She's doing a lot of pickling. And it's just like unbelievable what she does. So uh, if you're going there, I definitely have to hook you up with her. Yes, please. That sounds very cool. <laughs> So before we coming to an end here, um, is there anything that you would like to share with people? Is there anything that you would like to give people at hand, um, people that might be interested in stepping into the retreat chef business, becoming retreat chefs, um, leveling up their cooking game? Is there anything that you can share with people? I think... The most important thing, whatever you decide you want to do, it's really important that you just go and do it and you start somewhere. Because I think the biggest thing that holds people back is fear and things having to be a certain way to be able to start. I have to do this before I can do that. Oh, uh, this has to be right before I can start that. I think it's really important just to start somewhere. So if it's cooking, start by cooking for your family or do a little pop-up in your, you know, in your back garden and invite your friends and cook for, cook for people. Or if you just start somewhere, just do it. Even if you're just going to get a few people on there, you know, 
my first ever retreat, we had two clients, two clients. We had a small house in Spain. We had to invite four of our friends to pretend to be clients, but that was our starting point, you know? So we had six people in total and that was the first retreat, but it was the starting point of everything. And from then on, the next retreat, we had eight. And then the next retreat, we had 15. And the next retreat, we had 20. So you've got to start somewhere and don't be afraid to do that and to to make yourself vulnerable because that's how you learn. And you are going to make mistakes along the way, but you can learn from those and just make things better the next time. That's that's how we move forward and, and get better at what we do. So yeah, if you're listening, just do it. Whatever you are thinking of doing, just go ahead. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you for your words. Uh, beautifully put. And it was delicious talking to you, Bettina. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's so nice talking to you. And it's so nice talking to someone else that has experienced the retreat world because it's... Um, it's a very niche thing to do. I mean, there's not that many retreat chefs out there, is there, that have been doing this for 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 a while. It's a it's a particular breed. <laughs> yeah. And I would definitely love for us to go into the kitchen one day and cook together and create some magic. Oh my god, I'd love that. So you're based in Ibiza? Yes, I'm based in Ibiza. So come oh, over from yes, London. Please. It's just uh, there's so you many do flights. Not it's super need easy to, ask to come me. here. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to go to Ibiza. I've never been actually. Okay. Yeah, um, so Yeah, definitely. That's that, that'll be a nice place to go to. So, yeah, and if absolutely. you ever come to London, let me know. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to check out a few more beautiful retreat kitchens here in Ibiza. And I'm going to let you know. Brilliant. I'm going to send you a proposal so we can get together and make something happen. Amazing. I'd love that. Uh, so, lots of love and sunshine from Ibiza to London. And oh, thank, thank you, you again for your time and all your beautiful words. It was a pleasure. Definitely talk to you very soon. Dear friends, this was another episode of the Retreat Affairs podcast, this time with Bettina Campolucci-Bordi. You can find Bettina on her website, bettinaskitchen.com, on Facebook at Bettina's Kitchen, or on Twitter at Bettina's Kitchen, and on Instagram at Bettina's underscore kitchen. You will find all the links in the show notes if you go to retreataffairs.com. If you like the podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google or Spotify or any other podcast platform or head over to YouTube where you will find us too. Hit that subscribe button and the notification bell to be notified about the next episode. Please also consider leaving me a review on Apple Podcast. That would help me immensely to grow the show and get more listeners to the podcast. And you can also share it with your friends if you like what you've heard. Thank you for your support and thank you for listening. Until next time. Your host, Sascha Kaus. Music